Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 68. Psalm 68, hear now the word of our God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. This is the word of our God. One of the things I appreciate about the Trinity Psalter hymnal is the way they include the words with the music as much as possible. Uh, even sometimes in our own white book, sometimes we have a whole page of just words. So if, if I wanted to do this, this wouldn't have worked. Because if we tried to sing this song starting with just words on a page, it would be tough. But the Trinity Psalter hymnal has the second half of the song with the music. So I can read the first half of the psalm, and then we can sing the second half, and you guys aren't going to be lost because you won't know what the music is. So, uh, But Psalm 68 is a war psalm. It opens with a, uh, the triumphant reminder that God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Uh, the wicked will perish, but the righteous will be glad and rejoice. And David calls upon the righteous to sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. Think about what, what, what is that referring to? God riding through the deserts. Well, this was when God brought them out of Egypt, when he brought them to, to, to Mount Sinai. And the story that we've read so far, verses 5 through 18, recount this story that, that verses, verses 7 through 10 remind us of, of the exodus and the conquest. And, and then verses 11 to 14, speaking of how God routes his enemies and provides deliverance. And then verses 15 to 18, celebrate the coming of God to Zion, the mountain that he has chosen to make his name dwell there. 
We just heard in verse 17 that Sinai is now in the sanctuary. That might sound a little strange at first. Sinai is in the sanctuary because the sanctuary is now going to be in Jerusalem. Uh, David is celebrating the, that God has, God has told him that his son, Solomon, will build the temple. And so David, David is now celebrating what is going to be, a, so he's, he's probably writing this song for, for Israel to sing throughout their generations because the name of God, the presence of God, is going to come to Mount Zion. Why say Sinai? Because at Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord had appeared at the mountain. And then when they dedicated the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord left Mount Sinai and filled the tabernacle. And then when Solomon dedicates the temple, the glory of the Lord fills the Holy of Holies. The same glory that was at Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So Sinai has come to Zion. And that's why there's this whole little thing about the mountains of Bashan being all upset about this. I mean, it's, it's a sort of a personification of, of the nations. That even the mountains are, 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 are feeling jealous about Zion. Oh, Mount Zion gets the presence of God. That's not fair. We wanted the presence of God. How come, how come, how come Zion gets it? Well, this is why we do have to sing the second half of the song. Because we'll see that there's a purpose in why Sinai has come to the sanctuary. Why has God made his name dwell at Mount Zion? We'll sing in verse 24 of the procession of God into the sanctuary. And in verse 29, it's, it's because of the temple in Jerusalem that the kings of the earth bring their gifts. But then in verses 32 to 35, the psalmist says, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. He's not simply the one who rides through the desert. It's not just, that he, it was not, it's not just the exodus. It's also, he's the God of all creation. He's the God who rides in the heavens. And he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So all the kingdoms of the earth are called to praise God and bless his name because the God of Israel who dwells in, at Zion will now bring, give gifts to men and make this blessing upon Abraham, you might say, go forth to the nations. Psalm 68 is, is in a way retelling the whole story of the redemption of God's people, but now focused on the sanctuary and how it moves from, the, from God being present with Israel to then God's blessing coming to the nations. So verse 18, which is the very middle point of the, 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 the psalm, is also the central point of the psalm. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Our New Testament lesson comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Hear now the word of our God from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Now, did you see what Paul just did there? He quotes from Psalm 68. So when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68, verse 18 had said, and received gifts from men. men. Paul flips that to say, and gave gifts to men. Is Paul... Some people thought, oh, maybe he had a different different, uh, translation, different wording... No. Paul is thinking about the whole of Psalm 68, not just that one verse. He blends verse 18 with verse 35. Because what happens at the end of Psalm 68? God gives gifts to his people. And so at the end of Psalm 68, basically Paul takes the middle and the end and says, the the whole psalm is about why Jesus came and who Jesus is. Jesus is the God who arose and ascended, and he is the God who gives power and strength to his people. As as we're going through the creed, we've talked about how we confess our faith in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, The creed follows this Trinitarian structure because our God has revealed himself to us as one God in three persons. And for the last several weeks, we've been talking particularly about our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. And so today we come to the phrase, He ascended into heaven. The Apostles' Creed simply says, He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The Nicene Creed says, He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. Pretty close to exactly the same language. So what are we confessing when we say he ascended into heaven? Now, at the most basic level, we're confessing a a historical event. That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. We heard a couple weeks ago from Romans 10 how Paul teaches that Jesus is the one who descended into the abyss, how he entered the realm of God's wrath and curse. He took upon himself the cursed death of the cross. And as we heard last week, because God has raised him from the dead, therefore God will raise up to eternal life 
all those who believe in Jesus. So we've seen how the descent into hell refers to how Jesus endured the curse of God and remained under the power of death for three days. But God raised up his beloved son from the dead. And we usually just almost stop there because we usually talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's important because the death of Christ is, is the atoning sacrifice that paid for our sins. The resurrection of Christ is his victory over the power of sin and death. But we don't often spend as much time talking about the ascension. But if you think about it, without the ascension of Christ, his death and resurrection would be meaningless. I mean, without his ascension, I mean, now in one sense you might be like, hey, if he didn't ascend, he'd still be here on earth. Right. Yeah, just imagine that for a moment. I mean, I really, I mean I'm, boy, I'm sure somebody's written a novel. But, I mean, just imagine what would happen if Jesus was still on earth and had never ascended to the Father. That'd be pretty remarkable. There'd be this guy who'd been alive for the last 2,000 years. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that people who came in contact with him would, at least some of them would believe in him, and others might be really sort of, I mean, there's, there's been enough science fiction written about sort of beings, strange, strange beings with their strange powers. If in science fiction, how, you, how does that usually end? <laughs> there's some sort of war. <laughs> what would it be like if Jesus was still here? If he had never ascended to the Father and never sent the Holy Spirit, and it's it wouldn't actually be all that great because all that the Father promised depended upon him ascending to heaven. Because and this, this is ultimately, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism has a couple helpful questions to help us think, think this through a little bit because Heidelberg asks, is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he promised us? You know, Jesus said, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. So if Christ has ascended to heaven, how is he still with us? And the Heidelberg answers, Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth, but with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. According to the properties of his human nature, the person of Christ is, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But according to the properties of his divine nature, he continues with us to the end of the age, which he accomplishes by pouring out his spirit upon us. Which naturally prompts the next question the Heidelberg asks, but, but are the two natures of Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? And it says, well, not at all, for his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere, so it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. Uh, once again, we see the, the unity of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, acts according to the properties of, true, of, of two natures. He is truly man and truly God in one person. And the simplest way of, of putting it, which obviously takes a lot more unpacking, but the simplest way of putting it is that persons act, natures are. Your nature refers to a set of properties or characteristics. The, the humanity of Christ does not exist as a separate entity from the person of Christ. 
any more than does does your nature have a separate existence from you? I mean, when was the last time your nature went for a walk? Natures don't do stuff. They, they, your nature refers to the properties or characteristics of being human. Um, and that's where the person of Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, he, he acts according to the properties of two distinct natures. But the most important question about the ascension is where we'll focus. And again, Heidelberg has a useful way of putting it when he asks, how does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? And Heidelberg suggests three main benefits. First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And third, he sends us his spirit as a counterpledge by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. So let's, let's look at this and... First, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Uh, in Hebrews 9, it speaks of the ascension of Christ as the completion of his sacrifice. Uh, verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 9 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We oftentimes think about the atonement of Christ simply as being, oh, that was his sacrifice on the cross. But, Hebrews points out that a sacrifice isn't complete until the blood is presented in the Holy of Holies, using the imagery of the, of the, the Day of Atonement in the, in the Old Testament, where the high priest would take, the, the animal was slaughtered. Death of, the death of the animal is not the end, that's, that's, that's only the first part of the sacrifice. But it's when the blood is brought into the Holy of Holies, that's when, when the cleansing, the atonement is made. When does, when does Christ's blood make atonement for us? Hebrews says, it's when he presented himself before the Father, which he could only do in his ascension. Because his blood, until that point, remained on earth. It was only in his, with his ascended body that he goes to the right hand of the Father and brings the... The blood, his eternal, the blood of the, of, of the eternal sacrifice. Hebrews 9.24, which we heard earlier. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. How did Christ enter into the heavenly holy of holies? Well, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I mean, just... Just think back to the Day of Atonement. If on the Day of Atonement, the high priest slaughtered the animal and just left the carcass there, what would that accomplish? Slaughtering an animal, not, not very much. Could he make atonement for the people without the blood? No. Even so, if Jesus had died on the cross, but stayed dead, what good would it do? If Jesus had died on the cross and been raised from the dead, what good would it do? If, if Jesus was walking around on earth in his resurrected body, we still would not have a perfect sacrifice. We 
only have peace with God because Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and made that and completed that perfect sacrifice as our high priest brought the blood of the final sacrifice, his own blood, to the heavenly throne, to the heavenly altar. Therefore, the ascension of Christ benefits us in giving us an advocate before the Father. All, all through Old Testament history, there was no man at the right hand of God. I mean, if you, and if you think about the way John's Gospel does this, in, in John's Gospel, Jesus always speaks of the Father as my Father. He's constantly teaching on his special relationship to the Father. I and the Father are one. No one knows the Father but the Son and to whom the Son reveals him. But then after the resurrection, when he's he's making clear to Mary that, that he cannot stay on earth, Jesus says in John 20 verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In the ascension of Christ, the Father becomes our Father. Now, he had taught them to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, in in the other Gospels. But, In John's Gospel, John leaves out the Lord's Prayer, partly for that reason, because John doesn't want to use that phrase, Our Father, yet. He wants to hang on to it and say, Do you see? It's in the ascension of Jesus. When Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, that that is how we become able to become children of God, because that is where... When Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and he pours out the Holy Spirit, he joins us to himself that we might truly be one with him, one with the Father. So the ascension of Christ gives us an advocate, one who pleads on our behalf with the Father. And this is closely connected to the second point the Heidelberg Catechism makes, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Because of the ascension of Christ, there is now a man sitting at the right hand of God. Our flesh is in heaven as a pledge that those who believe in Jesus will be physically with him one day. I really... This is, this is what Psalm 68 was pointing to. All that language about Sinai being in the sanctuary as the glory of the Lord filled the earthly sanctuary. But also, Psalm 68 had said something about ascending on high. How can humanity enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest could enter the earthly Holy of Holies, and that once a year. How can we enter God's own presence in the heavens? Only if one who shares our humanity enters into heaven for us and offers that sacrifice that then brings us with him. And that leads to the third point that Heidelberg makes, that he sends his spirit as a counterpledge by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth. 
Peter speaks of this in Acts 2 at the at Pentecost when, when he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and therefore those who belong to Jesus are connected to him by his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out at Pentecost. This is the point that Paul makes in our passage in Ephesians 4 when he says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, it's a quotation from Psalm 68, but Paul's usage of the text is quite interesting. And over the last couple of weeks we've seen Paul does this a lot. We saw from Romans 10 how he uses Deuteronomy 30 in interesting ways. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the way that he used Isaiah 22. But here he's using Psalm 68 and seeing the whole psalm encapsulated here. Because in Psalm 68, God ascends on high and leads a host of captives and receives gifts from men. But Paul sees that in the incarnation, it's... It's no longer just God ascending. It's now God who has joined himself to our humanity. And so Jesus is the Yahweh who ascends on high, leading a host of captives. But now he gives gifts to men. Paul sees that what Psalm 68 was talking about has come true in Jesus. In Jesus Christ, Yahweh has ascended, has led a host of captives, and has given gifts to men, because that's what Psalm 68 says at the end, that this is what Yahweh does for his people. Now, Paul explains what he means in verses 9 to 10 of Ephesians 4. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. There's some debate about what he means by lower parts of the earth. Some think that it's just, well, earth is lower than heaven, uh, so the descent there would simply be the incarnation. Others, when thinking of the lower parts of the earth, would say, that sounds more like sort of the underworld, Sheol, Hades type language, in which case it would be a reference to Christ's descent into hell. Either, either one can work, um, but since we're talking about the ascension of Christ right now, the, the point is, is that, that Christ has now, because of his descent, he has now ascended far above the heavens, and that he has now given gifts to his church. The ascension is important because only one who sits at the right hand of God, only one who is himself true God and true man, can pour out the Holy Spirit upon us, can give gifts to his church. That's where, yeah, if Jesus were still walking around on earth, he he might have a little kingdom in the Middle East, but there'd be constant wars as all the other kingdoms were trying to topple his, and And what good would it do for him to destroy all his enemies at a word because there'd just be more rising up in the next generation? Because he didn't come to receive gifts from men. He came to give gifts to men. The ascension of Christ is for the good of his church. As he tells his disciples, it's good for you if I go. Because if I do not go, there will be no comforter. 
the, 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 the outpouring of the Holy Spirit can only happen if Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. It's only by Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father that the Spirit will be poured out upon the church, that the Spirit might be given to us so that we might build each other up. And this is, and this is what Paul goes on to say. He gave, uh, what, what gifts did he give? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. The first gifts that Christ gives to his church are these, these men. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What these have in common is they proclaim the word of God to his people. Jesus gives gifts to his church and the gifts that he first gives are these preachers who will proclaim the ascended Christ to his people. But what are, what are these gifts for? What are these preachers for? Well, look at what they do in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, these three things are the particular calling of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's what Paul was called to do in his day, and it's what pastors have been called to do ever since. So, my calling is to equip the saints. It's to do the, the work of ministry, serving as an emissary ambassador of Christ. It's for building up the body of Christ, to edify and encourage you in the way of Jesus. But then notice the, the goal of this equipping. Notice the purpose of this ministry uh, that, that Paul speaks of there in, uh, in verse 13. The purpose is, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by this craftiness and deceitful schemes. The preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the word, what I'm trying to do right now, is that you might grow up to maturity. That you might not be swept away by human cunning. So that you might know the Son of God. That you might be mature and complete. And then in verse 15, there's a... uh, In contrast to being swept away, rather, speaking the truth in love, we, all of us now, are to grow up into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. Now notice we've, we've gone from, from the, the, the gifts that God gave being these, the, the, the pastors, teachers, now to being the, the whole body. And each part has its own role to play. Each, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how does the body grow? Yes. The pastors and teachers are to be preaching and equipping and ministering and building up the body. But the body only actually grows when each part is working properly. I've told at least a few of you the, the story of our, our first intern who, after a few months, said to me, Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused. You keep preaching on the body of Christ and the community and how the church is supposed to be the family of Jesus. And I see you and your family practicing it. But I don't really see anybody else doing it. And what really perplexes me is, you don't seem to be bothered by that. <laughs> and I said, it had never actually crossed my mind that this was happening before, but until he said this. And as he said it, I was like, huh, it's actually true, isn't it? This was a long time ago. But I said, 
I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't change people. All I can do is the three things that Paul calls me to do, which is basically preaching and trying to be an example and model it. And the rest of it is his job. Now, a few years later, we had another intern who commented that he had never seen a church that had such community. What had changed in the interim? I mean, it's not that I suddenly figured out how to change people. No, it's that the Holy Spirit did his job. It's, I mean, that's basically, it's that, it's, that, it's that the body of Christ, each part was doing its part properly. What Paul says is, is true. The Lord, the Lord Jesus, who has ascended on high and given gifts to his church, it's so that when the gospel goes forth in word and deed, the whole body builds itself up in love. Now, just notice the parallels in, in verses 11 and 12 and verses 15 to 16. Because in verse 11, the gifts are these speaking gifts or these gifts who are speakers, preachers. But then what does the body do in verse 15? The body speaks the truth in love. What you, know, what you might say, what the pastor does, especially on Sundays, the whole congregation does generally throughout the week. That's where what we do, especially as the elders in shepherding the flock, all of you are doing in the way that you watch out one for another. What the deacons do, especially in ministering to the poor, you all do generally in caring for those in need. In that respect, the, the officers of the church, pastors, elders, deacons, are supposed to be exemplary Christians who are modeling the way of Christ, encouraging you and calling you to walk in that way. And the timing, the timing of this is rather convenient since the, the session just opened up nominations for elder and deacon. So, but just as you, as you think about who to nominate as elder, Look for those men whom you see as faithful followers of Christ, men, men you look up to as examples of the Christian life. And, and for deacon, look for those men whom, whom you see heading in that direction. Uh, the, the, the Paul, Paul's language of, 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 of the deacon is that there's a time of testing that they have to go through before they become deacons. So that in a sense, the deacon is, is heading there, and then the elder is the one who you, you look to, to say, yes, that's what I want to be like as a Christian. Because the church can, can only grow up in every way into what? Into Christ. Into whom? Because Jesus has ascended to the Father. You see, Paul's point is that what we are, what we are called to do and to be is we are called to, be, to grow up into Christ, into the head. Because he is the one from whom the whole body joined and held together. Jesus has united the whole church to himself. He has united the people to himself so that the whole church, when each part is doing its, its part properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And, and all of this is yours because Jesus has ascended to the Father and has poured out his spirit upon his church. And so let us live as those who share in the inheritance of his spirit. And as we, as we do this, think about what it means to speak the truth in love. I mean, oftentimes oftentimes when, we, when we think about sort of speaking the truth in love, sometimes, sort of, some, sometimes people overweight the truth and sometimes people overweight love, which actually you can't really do that. 
Because if you overweight truth without love, it's not really truth anymore. If you overweight love without truth, it's not really love anymore. They have to go together. Because truth and love can only, can only walk hand in hand. It's, it's actually it's, it's Francis Schaeffer's great point about how sort of you can, you can counterfeit one, but you can't counterfeit both at the same time. You, there, are, there are those who, who, oh, they're good at truth. But they're really harsh. They're not very loving. And there's others, oh, they're very loving, but they've lost truth. Where Jesus calls us to is speaking truth in love because they'll always go together. The truth as it is in Jesus is always a truth that loves. The love of God in Christ is always according to truth. And so as we, which I hope is a helpful thing to think about as you think about when you're in a situation where you're like, okay, how am I going to say this to so-and-so? Well, Think about, there needs to be truth, there needs to be love, to always go together. And, and that's where Jesus calls us, because he himself has gone before us. So let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you and praise you that you have sent your Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who has loved us and shown his love for us in laying down his life, that he might that he might. Bring us to you. Thank you, Father, for your great love for us. Thank you that, that you did not leave us in our sin and misery, but you sent your Son who came in our flesh and who joined himself to our humanity in order that he might join us to you. Thank you, and have mercy upon us for Jesus' sake. Amen.